A lot of people don't think about energy a lot. They think about what it costs them, but we've got to make sure that we're sharing the information that not only are these options out there, they can be better for you, they can improve your quality of life, and they can save you money. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. For Jared Duval, reducing reliance on fossil fuels is personal. Duval, a ninth-generation Vermonter, grew up shivering around a propane stove in a small apartment because his single mother struggled to afford her heating bills. Duval's father lived for a time in a tent behind a flea market in Clarendon, Vermont, using a space heater to survive Vermont winters. Duval is now executive director of Energy Action Network, a nonprofit organization working to advance Vermont's carbon emissions reduction targets. In its recently released annual report, the group calls for Vermont to make drastic changes to its transportation and heating sectors in the next five years. The state has committed to reducing its carbon emissions to 26% below 2005 levels by 2025 and 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. The state could be sued if it fails to meet those goals. I began by asking Duval where Vermont is at in meeting those goals. So we've made some progress recently. I mean, the good news is in the last couple of years, the, the curve has started bending down. Emissions have started coming down after a number of years of, of increasing. Um, the challenge, though, is that um, we've gotten most of those emissions reductions thanks to policy and regulations that have been focused on our electricity sector. Um, and so much so that if you look over the last few years, uh, you know, the vast majority, over 80% of the emissions decline in Vermont has come from declines in, in the purchases um, of electricity uh, that Vermont utilities and Vermonters make. Um, and there's so not- this, this is kind of the invisible back end. The fact that we purchase hydropower from Quebec <clears throat> is largely what's giving us, what's reducing our numbers, not that we're actually reducing our consumption. Well, we, we break all of that down in the report. There has been declines um, in, well, you know, electricity accounting is, is complicated, um, but basically the emissions that the state reports only comes from that amount of electricity that we purchase from the ISO New England grid mix, um, which has fossil fuel in it. Most of the other purchases in Vermont are exactly as you say, hydroelectric power, mostly from Hydro-Quebec, but also from some other hydro sources, um, rivers in New England, um, and nuclear power that we buy from New Hampshire, from Connecticut. Um, and then of course, there is also uh, solar and wind power that is part of that, that mix as well. But the bigger picture beyond electricity is that no matter how you measure it, no matter how you count it, um, it has always been the one of the lowest sources of our greenhouse gas emissions. The big elephant in the room is that 74% of our emissions, nearly three quarters, comes from our transportation and our heating. Um, that is the gasoline and diesel we use to get around, and it is the fuel oil, propane, and natural gas we use to heat our homes and buildings. So, you know, there has been a lot of focus on the electricity sector in Vermont in the last decade, and it, it feels like it is the focus of almost every <laughs> news article that, that is done. But if, 
I think one of the big takeaways of our report is that if we are going to meet our emissions reduction goals, both in terms of our moral responsibility and as you say, now a legal mandate, we need to focus on that elephant in the room now, which is all of the fossil fuel that is used in the transportation and heating sectors. And oh, by the way, that is also one of the largest sources of energy costs and energy burden for Vermonters. So the good news here is not only does our report show we can meet these goals, but if we do so with a focus on those sectors where most of the fossil fuel use happens, we can save Vermonters a lot of money, reducing energy costs, creating jobs and strengthening the Vermont economy. Your report uh, makes the point that we are basically at the starting line of meeting those goals. I mean, we may be some years into the, um, the process but we've barely begun. And I think I can distill your recommendations down to this. Any purchase we make going forward from right now needs to be fossil fuel free if we're to meet these targets. And specifically, you say that one out of every four new vehicles purchased in the next five years needs to be an electric vehicle. And, uh, Many of the heating appliances, if not all, need to be uh, non-fossil fuel if we're to meet those goals. How realistic, when you look at the purchasing patterns now of electric vehicles, it's still a really small part of you know the vehicles we buy. Um, what's it going to take to do what you're talking about? Well, the good news is that, that the technology exists. It's, it's proven available and ready and increasingly affordable. So, you know, over a decade ago, I think one of the reasons focus, folks focus so much on electricity is that, you know, more than a decade ago, it was one of the only options that we had to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions was to switch from fossil fueled electricity generation to sources like hydro or solar or wind. But in the last decade, there have emerged many, many options for how we end our fossil fuel use, for how we get around and how we heat our homes and buildings. Um, and that is electric vehicles um, on the transportation side, along with other options. Um, and on the heating side, there is a, a whole gamut from you know, different configurations of um, heat pump systems, efficient uh, heat pump systems, to advanced wood heating systems, to replacing fuel oil with 100% biodiesel, and of course, weatherization is, is part of the mix. So the good news is that this isn't about waiting for technology anymore. It's here, it's available. And you know a lot of our modeling and analysis that we cite in the report shows that it is already a, a, um, a source of significant cost savings. So let's just, let's just pause to think about like where we are in terms of energy costs for Vermonters right now. Um, we've seen in the last year gasoline prices go up 50%, you know, from about $2 a gallon last year to about $3 a gallon now. That is historically what we see, very overall higher average prices than the electric alternatives of, of charging an EV, um, and much more price volatile for gasoline and diesel. The same is true for fuel oil and propane when we think about the costs of heating our home. They are up uh, respectively, I think propane's up about 20% from last year already, and we're in the summer months. We're not even approaching the heating season yet. Uh, and um, fuel oil is up about 35% uh, from last year. 
Um, and so when, when you do make that different choice of whether it's, you know, your, your car is at the end of its life or your heating system is at the end of its life and you choose to get an electric or renewable alternative, you can then lock in lower costs year after year. And I think maybe we'll get to this, David, but, you know, I've done this myself. Everything I'm talking about, you know, my family has done, I don't use any fossil fuels anymore. And far from a sacrifice, it has improved my quality of life and saved us money. You know, when you charge an EV, it's the equivalent, if you're in Green Mountain Power Territory, of about a dollar a gallon, and there's almost no maintenance costs. So, um, you know, I think that the biggest challenge is cultural, um, and it's, it's just about education and awareness that these solutions are out there, because uh, a lot of people don't think about energy a lot. They think about what it costs them, but... Um, we've got to make sure that we're sharing the information that not only are these options out there, they can, they can be better for you. They can improve your quality of life and they can save you money. So let's turn to your personal story because you have walked the walk. Um, in 2015, um, you purchased uh, an old, uh, older home in Montpelier with your wife and young son. Is it that you have? Yes. Okay. Um, and the thing was really drafty and cold and really expensive to heat. Um, so what did you do? And I, and I should preface this by saying, um, you know, you're not uh, a wealthy person. Um, you had to really look at loans and things like that. I, I think a lot of times people feel frustrated because people speak cavalierly about, oh, I did this and I did that. And it just seems like, you know, listeners are left wondering, how on earth did you afford that? So walk us through what you did. Yeah, so, so um, you know, I, I grew up in Vermont. I'm a ninth generation Vermonter, but I was, I was away for a period for school. And when my wife and I moved back in 2014, uh, we got a very old house that had been on the market for a long time <laughs> for a reason. Uh, it was an 1890 house that was... Uh, you know, uh, ha had a lot of the kind of energy efficiency and energy technology you might expect for a house of that vintage. Um, and so, you know, that first winter was, was really uncomfortable. I mean, we set the thermostat as low as, we, at that point we were on one income, you know, we had a, a, a baby. Um, and, you know, I think we spent, uh, I looked at the bills, it was over $2,400 on fuel oil, about a thousand gallons of fuel oil to heat this really drafty house that winter. So the first thing we did the next spring was to get an energy audit and look at doing a kind of a whole home weatherization project to reduce the air leakage in the home. Um, there are so a lot of great- So that you're heating the air inside the house instead <laughs> of the air on the sidewalk. Yeah, not, not throwing the money out the window and, you know, maybe being able to set the thermostat up to 68 rather than 64 to actually be comfortable. Um, so, you know, it, and we did that and, and, you know, we worked with Energy Smart at a Berry and we achieved a 50% uh, air leakage reduction through what they were able to do in terms of adding blown-in cellulose in the attic, uh, um, you know, uh, work in the basement, air sealing. Um, and it basically made it um, so that we could then heat the whole house with a wood pellet stove. You know, we heat with a, we try to be as, my goals were get totally off of fossil fuels and invest in Vermont in Vermonters and, and my neighbors. So 
we heat with a wood pellet stove from Hearthstone in Morrisville. We heat with Vermont wood pellets from Clarendon. And that gives us, you know, 90% of our heating needs. Uh, and that feels great that that money's staying local. Um, we, we do ha still have our old boiler, um, or I should say our furnace, uh, which was a fuel oil furnace as a backup, but um, we run it on B100 biodiesel instead, um, which is now available by, uh, from Borden's Energy. They're the first fuel dealer in the state that is making available, you know, 100% renewable fuel uh, for folks who want to do a, a, a get off of fuel oil without any equipment change. Um, and, you know, that has basically reduced our heating costs a thousand dollars a year. And oh, by the way, you know, we're a lot more comfortable. It's, it's healthier. It's not an old forced hot air system going through old rusty asbestos wrap duct work, that type of stuff. I mentioned you um, had to take out loans to do this. Talk a little, uh, tell us what you, what you did there. Yeah, so I think, you know, it was a combination of, of things. You know, we, when we moved into the house, there was, you know, part of the foundation was crumbling away. And so we, need, before we could do anything, we needed to, you know, have the foundation fixed. And so, but that was also part of the energy work, right? Like you're not gonna <laughs> spray foam a basement with a big hole or crack in the foundation. Uh, so I, you know, some of it needed to happen anyway. It wasn't all like an energy project. Some of it was just basic needs that was done on the house. And a lot of the energy loans out there, you can incorporate those health and safety measures into the, the loan. Um, you know, there's an energy saver loan program that uh, Efficiency Vermont um, helps coordinate with um, groups like VSCCU and Opportunities Credit Union. And based on your income, I mean, if you're low income, these can be 0% loans. Um, you know, our, our interest rate wasn't quite that low, but it was better than, than market rate to be able to make these investments, you know, and all in all, um, between the efficiency work we did, putting in the um, pellet stove and a, a lot of other work, it was over 20, it ended up being over $20,000, but, you know, spread over 15 years and then incorporating all of the savings, you know, we're, we're coming out ahead. Um, based on those in investments. Um, you, what do you figure is the payback period uh, for the investments you've made? You know, I think that some of them were, um, you know, if, 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 if I look at the total investment, what that payback period will be, um, you know, I think it's probably going to be around, you know, 15 to 20 years, but I could have taken individual pieces of that and had a much shorter, like five to eight year payback. But, you know, we knew that we wanted to be there long-term and that even if we were, someone else would benefit from it and it would increase the, the value of the home because it's just that much more comfortable to, to live in and less expensive to heat now. So I want to um, talk a little bit about how this is personal for you, the issues of energy equity, um, I mentioned you're not a wealthy person. And if we open that up to look back to your childhood, that's really an understatement. Um, your dad, you have described, lived in a, uh, was, was unable to get a job due to health conditions and lived in a tent behind a flea market in Clarendon, Vermont. Um, talk a little bit about your upbringing and what you experienced. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I should say, I mean, you know, we are, my, my wife and I are, are now 
you know, in a, in a, the best situation we've ever been economically, we both have good paying jobs. I mean, I work for a nonprofit. My wife is the minister of the uh, Unitarian Church in Montpelier. So we are by no means struggling. And, and, and now, you know, our combined income is, is, is definitely above average. But when I was growing up, you know, my dad was um, a chef. My mom was a waitress. And, um, you know, and then my dad had multiple heart attacks. I mean, this is the story that a lot of people have, right? They have health challenges and then they go into medical debt, have to declare bankruptcy. And after he got out of the hospital, having a quadruple bypass surgery, I was 10 years old. He was 45 years old. Um, you know, he, uh, couldn't, couldn't work. He basically set up on a back of a flea market that whole summer. Um, and you know, this is the story of a lot of folks who, who have uh, medical challenges, given how um, unequal and inequitable our economy is. Um, and, you know, we were, um, you know, I, I've always been really grateful that, you know, we have social policies and programs in this state that offer a hand, a hand up for folks who fall on, on tough times. Um, we were certainly, you know, reliant on food stamps for uh, a period of time. But one of the things that I think about when I look back on that period is how expensive it is to be poor and how lower income folks often face higher costs for things like energy than, than other folks, which is the exact opposite of the situation you want, right? The people who are least able to pay having the highest costs. So for instance, you know, my mom and sister and I, we lived in a apartment above an uninsulated garage and in the place, you know, like most apartments, uh, the tenant pays the heating bills and it was, it was propane. And so we would, we would put the thermostat down to 50 degrees, um, overnight, um, because, you know, it was basically just warm enough to keep, try to keep the pipes from freezing. Um, and then, you know, turn it up a little bit and huddle in front of it in the morning when we were getting up for school. Um, and, you know, but, it's, it's like when you're in that situation, every degree you see the dollar signs, um, especially when it is a high cost fuel like, like propane. Uh, and, and the, you know, it's like low income folks, they don't have the luxury. We didn't, have, I never knew about these pre-buy programs where you can buy your fuel for the whole winter ahead of time. Most folks, you know, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's just whatever the spot price is. And that is higher too. So it's not just that your often lower income folks are dependent on higher cost heating sources. It's that when they pay for that, you know, often they miss out on the savings if they could do pre-buys or bulk purchases. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really, um, you know, that inequity is really ingrained in a lot of our energy systems. And my hope is that in this transition beyond fossil fuels, we can work to make our energy systems more equitable and, and serve lower income Vermonters first, not last. Um, I'm curious, you know, in describing your childhood, um, you nevertheless managed to keep swimming to the top. You ended up getting a master's at Princeton, attending Cambridge University in England. Um, how did you come through that with such strength and resilience? Well, I mean, I think it was uh, that specifically my both of my parents were 
you know, very insistent on and supportive of, you know, the importance of a, of a, of a good education. Um, and so I credit them, but it was also, you know, um, generous grant and low pro loan programs. I got the maximum amount of need-based student aid when I went to college. And that was because of federal student loan programs. And it was because of grants that, you know, from community foundations and, you know, generous folks who wanted to make sure that, you know, um, I guess, I guess what I'm asking though, I mean, you had to get into these very selective schools. How did you manage to keep so focused on your studies and be so successful through what sounds like a, a pretty challenging childhood? Um, you know, I think a lot of that is, is that, um, you know, I, I mean, it was, we, we faced economic challenges, but I, I never was in a situation where it affected my ability to go to school and to want to learn. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes I think, you know, of growing up, I feel like it was almost like my, my mom and dad faced a lot of economic challenges, but we didn't, uh, they kept a lot of it from us. They did as best they could to kind of shield us from that and encourage us to kind of, you know, reach for our, our goals. And I was really lucky that, you know, when I was, um, you know, applying to colleges, I, I, you know, had the opportunity to go to a play. I went to Wheaton College undergrad in Massachusetts and I got to study what I was fascinated in and just got really good grades my freshman year and sophomore year, which led to more scholarships. But you know, I, I would say that, you know, without that working hard um, and the generosity of folks to provide, you know, grants or low interest loans or scholarships, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to be on the path that I'm on, I'm on now. You know, I think there is this myth about the self-made man or the self-made person. Yeah, I worked my butt off um, and, it, you know, there was a lot on my part, but I recognize that there's a lot of stuff that I couldn't have done in terms of my education or in terms of the work that I do now, if it wasn't for the investment uh, from others and the generosity of others, you know, we're in this together. When you see uh, low income people in your daily work, um, had, what do you say to the kid who might have been a young Jared Duvall, um, you know, in challenging circumstances as they face their future. What advice do you have? You know, I, I do get the chance uh, pretty frequently to speak with young Vermonters, especially who are really concerned about the climate crisis and see this as the moral challenge of, of our generation. And, you know, a lot of whom are doing this work on top of, you know, trying to work multiple jobs and do their schoolwork and, and do all that stuff. And, you know, one of the things that I, I try to always say is that um, young people, especially, you know, if you're a high school student, college student, or, or just a young person not in school, um, have a particular amount of, of power, even if they're not of voting age yet, because of the, the moral clarity that they can, that their message, their voice, can provide at this moment in time um, because they're the ones who are going to be living with the consequences of inaction or action uh, more than anybody else. You know, <laughs> um, I'm hoping to, to live, you know, 
a, a long life, but um, you know, somebody who's a teenager now, you know, the year 2050 doesn't feel like this far off thing. A lot of people who work in climate policy work, you know, we've got targets for emissions reduction by 2050. You know, a lot of the young folks who are working on this now, they're just gonna be in the middle of their life at that point. And, and those projections feel real to them in a way that they may not for folks who are already retired. And we're already starting to see some of those impacts and they're getting worse. I mean, we're looking at the heat waves out West, we're looking at drought around the world, even here in Vermont, we're experiencing drought um, and you know the frequency of and, and intensity of storms were coming up on the 10 year anniversary of tropical storm Irene and you know the so you know I just think it is recog for any but for any young person who cares about the future of the, the world or even if it's just their their local community I feel like the response is always lean into that and follow your passion and try to do some some good and um, the rest will take care of itself. I mean, if you're doing that from a, um, a difficult situation, I've always found that like the best way to deal with that is to find fulfilling work and do it with people who, um, you know, inspire you and care about you. And, and it's from that community that you'll draw the support, both, you know, kind of uh, inspirational support, but often sometimes, um, you know, having real resources provided to you. It was when I first started getting involved with um, environmental organizing when I was in high school that I first learned about some of the scholarships that enabled me to then go on uh, to the college I went to and then afterwards, so. When you speak now of energy equity, what would energy equity have looked like to your family the way you imagine it should be? And what difference would it have made? I'm speaking of your family growing up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to turn the whole concept of, of who pays for energy and what energy sources are available to whom on, on its head. I mean, it's easier for me to talk in the, in the current, in the present tense, because back then so many of the solutions that we weren't available um, that are now that can really reduce folks energy costs. But, you know, so let me just give, you know, one example or, or two examples. A lot of clean energy policy in the United States to date has relied on giving out federal tax credits, you know, for solar power or the $7,500 federal tax credit for electric vehicles. Um, and, you know, that is something that only upper income folks who have, you know, a tax liability can take advantage of. And so I mean, it's not quite that simple. Of course, you know, if, if a lower income person decides to, to lease a car instead of buy it, then the value of that tax incentive can be applied and reduce the payment. That's what I did. I lease a Nissan Leaf. It's a little over $200 a month, but I'm, I'm saving a lot, of, a lot of money and charging the equivalent of a dollar a gallon. You know, there's no, um, oil changes, there's no fuel filter changes, there's no spark plugs. I mean, it basically just changed the tires on the EV and then charge it in my garage overnight. And, you know, it's more reliable, affordable transportation. Um, I think about the, the vehicles my, my parents bought and just, you know, for a lot of folks, they don't notice the difference between, you know, $2 a gallon or $3 a gallon. But, you know, my dad, he lived in Waits River Village the last 10 years of his life. Um, which is, you know, far northern, 
northern Orange County, um, right on the edge of the Northeast Kingdom. And, you know, it was the only place he could afford to, to live. Um, but he was having to commute every day down to the people he worked for, you know, professors at Dart. He was a handyman at the end of his life. Um, and he'd, he'd commute down to uh, Norwich or Thetford. And, um, you know, that, you know, every day, the mileage on that truck, you know, you know the fuel price spikes um, really, really mattered. If he could have been in the F-150 you know, all electric lightning that's coming out in the spring, I would have saved him a lot of money. And then, oh, by the way, when you're out in the work site, you can charge those power tools off the battery. I mean, that, that is a major breakthrough um, is, is having an all electric truck that's going to be, you know, starting under 40,000 as a base price, but then you can get it down. It's going to be able to be under 30,000 with all the incentives. And if you can lease that, and then take advantage of all of those savings over the years, that can make a big difference for somebody who's a contractor or a handyman and not be exposed to gas price swings and maintenance on an old pickup. Hmm. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Jared Duval, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much, David. Jared Duval is the Executive Director of the Energy Action Network.